Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. This is one of your co-hosts, Dr. Carrie Borkowski. As you know, if you've listened to our intro and first episode, we are in our fifth season of this podcast. Can't believe it. This season, we are focusing on belonging to self. And if you don't know why, please check out the previous episode. We'll give you a little insight. I am so excited for the guest you're about to listen to and the conversation that we had. You will have a chance to hear from Dr. Kevin Frick, who I have had the pleasure to know for quite a long time. I met him when I first became part of the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and we just sort of quietly and importantly for me anyway, connected in really positive and meaningful ways. And even as he went on to the Cary Business School at Hopkins and I went on to do other things at the School of Education, we found ways to stay in contact. And I'm so thrilled. I've been following him for a long time on LinkedIn and following his stories. And I'm just so thrilled that he made some time in his very busy schedule to sit, to sit down with me and Brianne and talk about his journey and his story of belonging. So I know that Brianne and I are very, we're very excited and we hope that you will enjoy this conversation. All right, everybody, here it is. The galaxies we Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Carrie Borkowski, here with my other co-host, Dr. Brianne Roos, and we are so excited, and I feel honored that we get to speak with Dr. Kevin Frick, and he is a professor at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. He has led a career in three acts at Johns Hopkins. In Act One, he achieved the rank of full professor at the Bloomberg School of Public Health with research on the cost and cost effectiveness of interventions related to vision impairment and eye health, as well as cost-related analyses of nurse-led interventions and a strong focus on teaching about health economics. In Act Two, he moved to the beautiful Cary Business School as the Vice Dean for Education. He helped build the school's online education program from one incomplete course to over 70, facilitated the school's achieving initial accreditation, and led the process of building a student support team from just over 30 to over 70 to meet the growth of the school. In Act 3, he has returned to a faculty role in the business school with a focus on teaching, a return to research, and an effort to create belonging for all stakeholders at the Cary Business School. Examples of his work in creating belonging range from acts as simple as reading every name at the graduation ceremonies since 2014, with a focus on correct pronunciation of the names of international students to work on a video to, to work on a video called Business of Pronouns that was intended to help faculty and other stakeholders who are unfamiliar with the use of anything other than he or she to understand why some people ask others to use non-standard pronouns how people feel when the wrong pronouns are used, and how to think about this in the classroom and in business. He has been asked increasingly to serve on DEIB-related committees at the business school, at the university, and in the professional associations with which he is affiliated. Woo! Kevin Frick, my goodness, what a career. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm I'm I can't help but wonder, is this a three-act play or will we see a fourth Ooh, act question. at some point? <laughs> I think, you know, it'll it'll be it's an interesting question for act three, whether uh, it just sort of continues to evolve yeah. or it turns into something completely different at some point in time 
uh, that I can't even imagine right now, because I think one of the things, particularly in the past, uh, you know, sort of stepping down and away from the vice dean role, it was a great role to hold for eight and a half years. People at Hopkins, some hold it much longer than that. Some <laughs> hold it shorter than that. Yeah. Uh, mine was sort of the right amount of time. And, you know, looking at really taking a look at my own values um, and mm. my own authentic values and what I wanted to do and going through a couple exercises about aligning values and actions led by a local coach here in Baltimore, I realized that if there was no clear path to being Dean, and increasingly I'm like, why would I have wanted to be Dean anyway? But that's a, that's another story. Uh, but if there was no clear path, then you know I could do things better in a faculty role. Mm -hmm. And one of the beautiful things about a faculty role, tenured faculty role at a place like Johns Hopkins is that yeah, I've got to continue to do the research, but people see how I can create value for the school and the university in ways other than just the research. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't just serve on a committee to check a box and say, yes, I did service. Mm -hmm. I serve on a committee because I want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's the university's diversity leadership council, uh, a new trans awareness action group that's been formed at the university to really look at transgender issues at the university level. Uh, the making of the business of pronouns, a project that preceded that that I didn't lead but helped with looking at uh, LGBTQ plus narratives in academia. Mm. And as the organizer said, not from a what's so hard about academia for the LGBTQ plus community, but what are the strengths and assets we bring to the community? Mm. And really focusing on that and how people found their sense of belonging within Johns Hopkins was a wonderful place to be and to be able to pursue things like that so much more than I used to be able to and take leadership that way mm -hmm. and have a leadership role without a title because the title has implications about what you're expected to do. Right. Whereas when you get to lead just from your passions, it's so much more exciting as long as I don't let it get so big that there's not enough hours in the day to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And I will look forward to seeing what's what's coming up for you, Kevin. So something new we wanted to add to the podcast this year, and I think you're you're such a, a perfect individual to to start this off, is we this we pride ourselves on this podcast as really holding space to do lots of listening and sharing of all kinds of stories from diverse individuals from all kinds of backgrounds. And one thing we really believe is that to orient us and the listeners to the stories um, that we will hear and share, we want to start inviting our guests, and this is an invitation only, not a requirement, to share pronouns and their preferred pronouns and any part of their identity that they think might be integral or important to really understanding the conversation. So I offer you that invitation and... Um, I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> sure. So pronouns, I use he and they. Mm -hmm. um, I have been misgendered as she a couple of times. People seeing me from behind with long hair and dangling earrings and not seeing me from in front. And, you know, if that happens, it happens. I realize, you know, people who don't know me, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's perfectly fine. Uh, the journey has been an interesting one. Um, you know, I, I read all these stories about people who say, well, I knew ever since. Uh, and I just was finally able to implement it. And that's not really my story. Um, you know, were there elements of things that sort of might have led me to think, oh, well, I don't completely line up as a stereotypical male? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I probably could have said that for a very long time. But it was really, uh, well, the pandemic actually brought this on in many mm. ways. Oh, uh, before the pandemic started, when I was in the vice dean role, I tried to work with uh, 
many of the student groups get to know the leadership, see what they're doing. Uh, and for two years, we had someone here who had been uh, immediately out of Hopkins undergrad. Uh, this individual had worked in the LGBTQ plus life office for four years as an undergrad, so knew the office inside and out and helped me to make a stronger connection with the person who at one time was our director of LGBTQ plus life university wide. And early in the pandemic, and that's what it got me interacting with the LGBTQ community more than I ever had previously. Um, and not that I'd had any reason not to interact with him, but I also hadn't had a reason to interact with him and really think about, you know, how, what it means, how I relate to these people, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so early in the pandemic, Hopkins had something called uh, Queer in the Workplace webinars, uh, which was fascinating to listen to. And they had a whole series of other webinars under Being Other, which you know, several times focused out, focused on LGBTQ plus individuals. And you, again, while that wasn't my part of being other growing up, I'd felt like an other all kinds of times, somewhat nerdy, uh, you know, sports, but cross country, which like, what is that rather than like, you know, <laughs> basketball or football or something or baseball. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I tuned in and I realized that, you know, this was a crowd I felt comfortable with. This was a group that I felt like I could, you know, relate to. And I'm like, but why you know and so continue to think about it and you know i looked at all of my adult meaningful friendships um i could count not only on one hand but maybe on one finger meaningful friendships with males and everybody else in my friendship world is women um i took a a silly well, not silly but an online uh quiz you know here's a set of values and actions and beliefs and you know which ones characterize you and which ones don't and to the degree that we have labeled values, actions, and beliefs masculine versus feminine, I lined up on about 90% of the feminine ones and about 40% of the masculine ones. Mm. Um, now, Carrie, you've known me long enough to know that what we're given what we typically label as masculine and feminine, that probably wouldn't even surprise you. <laughs> um, but I'm like, well, what do I do with that? You know, and mm -hmm. so uh, I talked to the person who had been our LGBTQ plus life director, and she sent me to an author named Kate Bornstein. And Kate has written books, including uh, Your Gender Workbook and uh, Gender Outlaws. And, you know, Demery said to me, take what you will, do the exercises, don't do the exercises. But if you read through the workbook, at least, you know, ponder some. And what uh, what Kate writes about in her her work on the on the gender workbook is it's OK to just play with gender ideas, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, especially in the space that is labeled as non-binary as opposed to trans uh, and just people who like to express both sides in ways that, you know, they might clearly present, you know, physically as male, but their dress is more mixed androgynous. Again, actions, beliefs, leadership styles, much more feminine than masculine, friendships all on, the, on you know, one side, tattoos representing feminine themes, my uh, pendant today is a Medusa pendant, you know, very strong, uh, I think is a strong women uh, theme story. Um, so much symbolism in my life from things that are on the feminine side. And I'm like, that's okay. And we can just let it be. And it can just sort of sit in that space that I've begun to label in my journaling. And even some stuff that I share on LinkedIn, the great in between. Mm -hmm. where you know it's not completely one it's not completely the other it's not that i'm ever going to you know do anything to you know change my physical appearance greatly 
Um, but, you know, being in that space, and it's been something that uh, has taken some time to grow into and become comfortable with. Uh, and those who have, you know, followed me on LinkedIn over the past couple of years will have seen much of that growth and evolution over time. And um, it's not an easy space to, to sort of figure out your way in. But one other insight from a Hopkins community person, um, you used to have a faculty member who was a, you know, um, fully out trans male, didn't try to hide any of it, willing to talk about the issues that, you know, he had faced. And uh, he was giving a presentation one time and he said, you know, we've increasingly used the word demi so and i'm like huh demi non-binary so kind of kind of affiliating understanding feeling what that means but you know is it well and what does fully versus demi non-binary mean anyway if it's a if it's a spectrum yeah uh and the other thing that uh that this uh, individual used to present was um and there's different presentation styles uh people sometimes get caught up even in terms about non-binariness treating them as binary you're either trans or you're not you're non-binary or you're not. And in fact, there's a whole spectrum of sexuality, feelings, gender expressions. And increasingly what people present is, you know, you've got sexuality and gender or this thing called the gender unicorn, or sometimes it's presented as a gingerbread person rather than a unicorn. But it like helps to remind people, you know, you've got, you know, what you were born as. And even that is not as binary as we like to think sometimes. Uh, you've got, you know, who you are attracted to, who you want to spend time with, how you view yourself and how you present yourself. And for all of those, you know, none of them are a toggle switch. All of them are a spectrum. And what's even more interesting is that one of the representations gives a spectrum for both, you know, masculine and feminine for each of them. So you could be mm. a lot of both in some ways. You could yeah. be some of each. You could be not very much of either. Uh, and really showing it as a slide bar you know, mm. really helps to emphasize if you take the time to think about it. And, you know, for those of us who are willing to accept that this is the way, you know, humans are made and we are not, you know, toggle switches on yeah. these characteristics because <laughs> uh, some people don't choose not to you know, engage in this discussion. But if you're willing to, uh, there's a lot there to think about. And uh, and again, it's taken me some time to get there, but it's a, it's a space that I find myself, A, um, now feeling very comfortable in and be using the privilege that I have as a tenured faculty member mm. to set an example for others uh, and realizing that it's privilege as a tenured faculty member to, you know, particularly now that I'm no longer in the dean's office, if I want to come in with a very abstract design shirt under an otherwise, you know, sort of staid blazer, that's fine. And, and you know, I get many comments, not so much from my other faculty, but from staff and students about setting an example. Mm. Awesome. Wow. Oh my gosh. I just took all of these notes down the whole side of my page <laughs> because Kevin, first of all, this is such a privilege to meet you. I was so impressed by your bio and I'm just loving all the, all the things you're sharing so far. Carrie and I talk so much about language and the importance of language, and we want to just keep learning more language. And now I have this whole list of words <laughs> that I want to understand more on the side. So thank you for that. Um, I really loved what you said about your role and sort of the evolution of your role and the question of act four or sort of act three a or something. Um, and I wonder how that connects to your definition of belonging. So I heard you say that you aligned with your values and like really intentional values work and kind of looking at where you could enact those values in your day to day. And it turns out it wasn't in the place with the title, but rather in a different place, still leadership roles, but different. So 
I wondered if you could share with us your definition of belonging. So I think for belonging, and it's interesting to think about like, what is a definition versus sort of, and it's interesting, we, I've talked about belonging and uh, versus inclusion quite a bit, because, you know, in the field of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, people go back and forth. You know, is there a fourth word beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion? And who's doing the including and who's feeling the belonging and who's responsible for making the environment so that one can feel like they belong? But when I feel like I belong somewhere, I feel like the only in the only thing that inhibits my success is me. Mm. If I if I belong somewhere and I want to create an environment for others where the only thing that inhibits their success is either their resources or their imagination. And if it's just a matter of resources, we can hopefully find a way to get them more resources. If it's their imagination, there's not much I could do about that other than in my mentoring roles, help people. You know, one of the things that I view as a mentoring role, especially in an amplification versus giving people the answer sense, you know, I'm really focused over time on my role is not to solve people's problems, but to amplify the solutions that they're thinking about or help them find those solutions and then amplify their opportunities to do it rather than solving the problem for them. But one of the things that I want to do as a mentor is get people who are otherwise in some way, shape or form marginalized by society to ask themselves, if those marginalized constraints weren't there, if you didn't have these impressions, if you didn't have the history and, re and really recognizing that for an individual, it's not just their current state, but it's all the history of people in their group who have been marginalized in the past and how society continues to treat them that way. But if we could drop all of that for just a moment and you had no constraints, what would you dream of? How would you dream differently in that case? Mm -hmm. And really getting people to think about you know, and create that space where everybody feels like they can do that. Now, will everybody be able to manifest that? Not necessarily. But mm -hmm. even to dream that is feeling like you belong in a space. You are in that space. It's not like you're just trying to weasel your way into the space. Do I really fit here? But yes, I am in this space. I can do what I want to in this space. And my journey is for me to control. And the, again, the only limits being my dreams and my resources along the way. Wow. That was incredible. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I have to say as a, so I've recently in the last couple of years, uh, went through some training to get to be a coach and I, I, you know, what you're saying really resonates Kevin in the sense of amplifying, right. It's because the, the fundamental, fundamental belief that I have as a coach is that every, anyone comes to me with exactly what they need already, that I'm not giving them something. I'm not giving them not solving. And it's just us sort of mining for what they already know to be true. And so I just, I, I really appreciate um, what you said. I also think going back to this notion of creativity and we can't do much to sort of affect that creati creativity. I think what's interesting about your comment is that what I was thinking about is similar to coaching is once you've asked them that question about what if the constraints weren't there, you can't unring that bell. And so even if you can't create creativity for the person, I just believe in my heart and soul that they're not going to forget that question ever. And they may come back. They just can't, you can't unsee that once you've given them the possibility of those constraints being lifted. So I think that's such a important gift that you're giving um, your students and staff for sure. Yeah. And I was thinking about all the pre-work that must be required to get to a place where you can ask that question and the person you're speaking with can even imagine a world without the barriers that you were describing. Because I don't think that you could ask that question cold. No, right? no, no. Yeah. So it's a lot of rapport building. And, you know, I mean, it just, I don't want to skip that because I think, 
even in just these few minutes with you, I can tell that you're just very kind. You're so attentive. And so I could imagine that someone, you would be very inclined to that sort of work and conversation to help someone to feel comfortable enough to imagine for a second what it could be like without all those barriers. It's interesting to think about how you get there. I mean, I think one of the things, um, so a lot of my friendships that I have are formed through running. Mm. Uh, I'm an avid runner, you know, done 12 marathons, getting ready to do number 13, have maybe a number 14 on the list, but probably after that, I'll keep running, but the marathons will probably be done for a while, <laughs> if not forever. Uh, but as I tell people when I'm out running, I, I have five different, all women, who I run with at least once a week, almost every week. Uh, one person I'll often see twice a week. And one of the things about running is if you can carry on a conversation while you're running, which I realize not everyone can do, but it is a great form of exercise because you can carry on the conversation and it's uninterrupted. You know, nobody has their phone out. Nobody's checking email while they run. You know, you're just focused on, you know, making sure you don't fall, keeping whatever pace you're going to pace and having a conversation. You know, one person I've been doing that weekly with for almost 10 years now, the depth wow. of the relationship you can wow. form by meeting with somebody for an hour a week. Granted, we're not having coffee. We're not out for drinks, but, you know, running an hour a week together almost once a week for 10 years uh, and twice a week because of our, our uh, habit of going to the farmer's market on Sundays uh, <laughs> after we run uh, for most of the last five. It's an amazing gift to have. Mm. And you can form some really deep relationships, but that's symbolic of giving full attention, doing active listening. You know, you can't form a relationship at that level where you begin to know the person. Uh, and I like to say, you know, especially when you're getting to know someone from a diversity category that's not my own, I need to be curious, but humble. Curious, because I, I want to, I need to demonstrate that I want to learn about them. Humble in only pressing so hard. And humble also in respecting them. And, you know, when something is new to me, don't always ask them to teach me. Do a little bit of the homework myself because uh, they've probably had to explain that a gazillion times to other people. And, you know, once I've done some homework, then say, oh, well, you know, you mentioned this. I followed up and learned this. But could you elaborate on this part for me rather than just give me a brain dump of all you ever know about this topic, yeah. which people get tired of and get exhausted from quite easily? Yeah, I agree. I I. I, the running I feel like the I had a, a couple of years ago there was a guy that I would run with we were training for some things and how quickly you can establish a really strong relationship because it is it's that dedicated you know attention that you're giving each other um so I, I love that I also have to say so I'm working with a coach these days and she is a trained yogi so we're doing a lot of movement and body work around coaching and I have to believe Kevin that the other piece of doing this while running is that physiologically and cognitively, the movement mm. really stimulates creativity and openness and imagination. So sort of just like, it feels like there's a multiplier effect there, right. In, <laughs> in the, in the state of, and it doesn't have to be running for folks who listen, who don't run. I mean, it could be a, a great, I, I know people who are avid walkers, right. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just getting out there and moving, which I, I really love. So so you've sort of in your beautiful um, articulation of of um, preferred pronouns, you sort started to unpack a little bit more of your story. Um, 
but what I'd, I'd really love to hear more of your story and in particular your belonging story. And I know we joked before the pod that this, this could be um, a whole series of episodes <laughs> unto itself. <laughs> so in the interest of keeping, keeping us sort of on, on a, a semi-schedule, um, can you describe maybe a significant moment? And I, and I know that's, you know, even a tricky word, significant, but just a moment of belonging that came, came to you when I, when we asked this question initially, sort of like, what did it look like? What did it feel like? Who was there? What were you doing? Those kinds of just, I don't know, give us some color and texture to your story. I'll take two. So, okay. uh, and then I'll keep them both short. So That's one okay. actually goes all the way back to high school. Oh. Um, there was, uh, so one of my, my best friends in high school, when my friendships were dominated by, uh, by males, because basically as a Dungeons and Dragons playing uh, teenager, there just weren't a whole lot of females playing Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. <laughs> um, I realized, you know, role-playing gaming is much more uh, diverse now, but it wasn't very diverse in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the one of the guys I played with was uh, helped run a comic book store. Mm -hmm. I never was an it was nearly as much of an avid reader as he was, but there was a series X-Men, which many people know about because mm -hmm. of all the movies. And in the 1980s, there was an offshoot of X-Men called New Mutants. Uh, and they had their own series. So it was a younger generation of, you know, mutants trained by the same Professor Xavier. Uh, and there was an issue. And when I got rid of all my comic books, I kept one. It is in my office to this day. And in this episode, in this uh, issue of the comic book, um, an individual was illustrating that he might have some mutant powers. And one of the premises of how both the X-Men and the New Mutants were written was that, you know, the population that didn't have the mutant powers saw them as other and wanted to track them down, hunt them down, you know, throw them in prison, things like that. And so this individual wasn't sure what to do, hadn't been found by the other main characters who were under Professor Xavier, and ended up committing suicide. And why do I keep it on my bookshelf? Uh, I keep it on my bookshelf because nobody should feel that much of an other. And the flip side is they should feel like they belong so that they don't feel like they are an outsider and need to take hopefully nothing extreme as extreme as being suicidal. But even many things short of being suicidal demonstrate feeling like I am not inside, I am outside, I do not belong. And so that has stayed with me since I was 16. Um, and again, that will come with me if I ever switch offices again, maybe, well, I doubt I will leave the university, but if I ever go, so that will come with me. Because, uh, like I said, I sold all the other couple hundred, you know, comic books I had accumulated as a teenager, but that one is still there. Mm -hmm. And then something, even just yesterday, which is really interesting to illustrate, you know, how much a feeling of belonging. So we had our first first Thursday happy hour, which the business school has adopted as a way of, you know, generating some community, particularly post pandemic, trying to make people feel like, you know, they they should come to the office once in a while and be part <laughs> of something. Yeah. And uh, in the course of yesterday afternoon, um, you know, one of the steps in my process of, uh, you know, just, you know, my, my in-between gender expression has been uh, wearing flats. And uh, I have gotten a particular brand that, you know, several of the women in the office also like, and they're like, oh, it's so cool, you know, and they're asking me what I think about them and things like that. And, and I said to one, you know, well, runners will sometimes take a picture of their running shoes at the end of a run and post that as, yep. as social media. And so <laughs> yesterday, one of my colleagues and I, uh, she's in the student services part of the school, I'm on faculty, and we just took a picture of both of us wearing our flats of the same brand. I thought that was, you know, <laughs> kind of cute. 
And in the same afternoon, a gentleman who, uh, again, is is an out member of the LGBTQ community and has been since the day he was uh, first employed here at Cary, uh, came up to me and said, Kevin, I've seen your post and I almost feel like I'm not doing enough. I'm like, no, 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 no. We, we're all doing the amount that we should be. And remember, your choices of how you come to work, what you present, things like that are in a very different way constrained you as a staff member than me as a tenured faculty member. So you do what you can do for yourself, for other staff, and for the students to demonstrate what you can demonstrate. And I will do what I can do. And that might be a broader set of things, again, because of the privilege that tenured faculty have. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I do continue to see that as something that is an important, um, not to pat myself on the back too much, but it's an important role to demonstrate while still doing it in a way that's that's humble. Um, and I, and I, and I feel, always feel this tension between saying, I want to demonstrate this, but it's not the goal of calling attention to myself. It is simply the goal of setting the example and saying, you can do maybe not all of this, but what, what little edge of you know, the boundaries of constraints that you're feeling, can you cross over and say, this is still probably okay. And it's going to let me be closer to my authentic self. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I the word that came to mind for me, Kevin, was it feels like you're inviting the possibility, right? You're offering and inviting people in, which I think is 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 all we can do, right? Because you're right, you you sort of create this tension with demonstrate. So I'm hearing in your belonging story, and and it's so interesting. We often hear in our interview, many interviews with different people, that when we talk, start talking about belonging folks at some point talk about a moment when they didn't belong or the othering, right? So we go to this sort of other piece of this. So I heard that in your story. And then I heard the the other piece of sort of feeling like you're in a place, you're able to express yourself given the context and the privilege. And we go back to your definition that included this idea that I know I belong when the only thing that inhibits my success is me. So the question I have is, how do you know that? Like, how do you in your bones know that, right? Because you can go into a space. How do you know or what are the sort of signs for you that the only thing getting in my way right now is myself? So a um, couple things. I mean, one, uh, again, recognizing it, it, a lot of it does come back to the privilege of a tenured faculty member. I yeah. mean, you know, that role in a university is almost unique in terms of the autonomy that one has at that point and the ability to to do not quite whatever one wants but you know someone wants uh, uh, a person who was thinking about getting a phd once said well if i get this i'll be able to choose my own adventure for my career i'm like closer not 100 <laughs> percent, but yeah. much closer not quite <laughs> uh, but certainly much closer but i think you know when i think about um when I think about my 10 years at the business school and I think about, you know, when I had a formal leadership role with a title, you know, I was trying to work toward my authentic self because one outside coach I work with said, if you just would let yourself be yourself, you would see people wanting to be around you, mm. coming to you for advice, looking to you as an example. But I always felt like, oh, but the person who is, you know, one step above me expects me to do A, B and C. And that was attention. Um, and in many ways, I could even have asked myself at that time, is that, you know, is that my boss limiting me or, or is that me limiting me? Mm. Uh, and I think it was a lot more me limiting me than I thought at the time of my boss limiting me, if I'm going to be honest about that. Mm. Um, 
but now I really am at a point where, you know, again, and this really helps that I'm in an environment where I don't need grants in the way that I would have mm -hmm. if I had stayed in the School of Public Health. Uh, but as long as I do my job when it comes to teaching and, you know, producing some amount of research, with that done, the service that I want to do, the, you know, leadership in the diversity space that I want to take on, you know, that's all just icing on the cake at this point that mm -hmm. I can take in whatever direction I want, push it as far as I want. Again, once the, the basics of the job get done, there's there's all of that available. And, you know, recognizing and basically it's almost like this is just like a life lesson in general, regardless of the belonging. Um, you know, when you hit a constraint, you know, you stop and ask, is this a real constraint? Is it a perceived constraint? If it is a real constraint, do I have any power to move it? Or if not, who's the one who does have power to move it? Mm -hmm. And to begin to sort of work through those things, you know, step by step, each time you come up against something, you know, which do I change direction and try to go around in another way? It's like working your way through a maze, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in video games, sometimes, you know, like you can just force your way through the maze, <laughs> yeah. you know, our pencil and paper mazes, we would find another way around it. But, you know, every once in a while, you do try to just bust through. Mm -hmm. um, and every once in a while, you'll find a way to do that or someone who can help you do that. But so much of this process is just, you know, identifying which constraints are the real ones and which constraints with just a little bit of creativity, uh, you can find ways to get around. Yeah. Do you find, I'm curious, going back to your role as a sort of mentor um, to your students and per perhaps other individuals, do you find that that individuals that you're working with see the possibilities in in those constraints because I often see with educators teachers who aren't sort of district leaders for example that they often feel incredibly constrained and sort of stuck and so I'm wondering can you give us a little insight like what does that look like to help somebody else think about navigating their own circumstance because you're right like really the three of us in different ways have a lot of privilege, right? And so our navigation and our tools look much different than other folks. And I'm just wondering, what have you noticed and learned from those conversations? I think a lot of times it takes people a lot to, it takes a lot. To, and it comes back to what we talked about earlier of getting people to imagine if there mm -hmm. were no constraints. Right. So you have to have that rapport. Yeah. But once you build that rapport, you can do a couple things for people to try to get them to imagine the beyond. Um, you know, it's asking them, well, what's getting in the way? And, you know, a lot of people like to do the exercise of the five whys, you know, why is that in the way? And by the time you ask why the fifth time, um, you know, you're usually at the root cause of something and it doesn't always take five, but you know, five is usually mm -hmm. as many as you would need to get to a root cause. And so that's one way to approach it. The other thing that I like to do, I mean, I have such a network it helps to have been in the same institution for 27 years and then to be involved in multiple professional organizations outside. So between people in the organization, students I've taught, people I've met through professional associations, the network I have, not everybody is close, but I have this vast network of individuals who I can turn to. And one thing that I love to do is to be able to connect people. So, you know, just this week, um, you know, I have a, uh, an individual who came to me and said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I want to do X, Y, and Z after I finish at carry. And I said, oh, well, there, this happened to be a female. Uh, I happen to be able to connect them to two women. 
but it was one woman who went who was in med school took a year off to come to Cary, and this student wants to go to med school after she finishes at Cary, uh, and then. She's been working in uh, the optometry ophthalmology space part time as a even during her student. I'm like, oh, well, one of our carry along went and worked for a particular company's optical division for several years as of her first job out. And so just finding ways to say, even if I can't help you move these constraints, here are two people I know. They may or may not have 15 minutes to give you. But if you come to them and say, here's three questions I want to ask you people love to talk about themselves. And that's one of the easy ways to make connections. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, to really offer that sort of connection can help them, while I may not be able to get them past whatever the constraints are, opening doors to other people. And then, you know, if we were talking about research, we're using sort of a snowball, uh, mm -hmm. snowball sampling type of uh, an approach, uh, always got to semi wear yeah. my research hat. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> go to this person, and ask them when you're done, even if they're only ever going to give you 15 minutes, by the way, are there two other people you could recommend I do mm. informational interviews with? And by the time you've done that three or four times, you've expanded your network by, you know, whatever multiple of two you're on at that point. Uh, and somebody sooner or later is probably going to have something they can actually give you directly as opposed to just having a conversation. Mm. Mm. I love that idea because I, I, I feel fortunate as well, having been in different circles that I do similar things with students because I have a large enough network, but I, what I didn't do, what I'm going to start doing is encourage them to ask that person for two more additional contact. Cause that's such a, mm -hmm. what a great way for them to take some ownership and then also expand their own network. So uh, it's a, a great... it was a paper towel commercial. I don't know whether it was in your childhood, <laughs> but it was in my childhood. It was a, it was a, you know, stereotypical it was a woman who had you know found the beauty of this one brand of paper towels and yeah. she said i told two friends and we told two mm. friends and we told two <laughs> friends and you know, it's just the number of people on the screen grew exponentially wow. yeah uh and you know it only probably got to about like 64 on the screen but but you <laughs> yeah. get the point that you know yeah. if, if the person is willing to follow up on that they can build a, a quite a network quite quickly absolutely so kevin how does being the facilitator of those networks in some way how does being that connector contribute to your belonging? Um, it it contributes to my belonging, A, because, I mean, it just brings me joy. Mm, um, yeah. You know, it's it's more than just I help somebody. It, it's it's truly, it, it makes my heart sing. I mean, there's no other way of describing what I mm. feel when that happens, uh, especially if the, either or if both parties come back and say, wow, I had a great conversation. Thanks for this introduction. That's the best. Yeah. Um, doesn't always happen, but at least one will usually tell me that was at least an interesting conversation or a useful introduction or something along those lines. Uh, but in terms of my sense of belonging, you know, when I ask myself, is this what I should really be doing? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's the limit on doing this? There's no limit on doing this. I mean, until the day I, you know, to the last class I teach or the last student who comes my way. And the other beautiful thing is, as part of a higher education environment, some of my faculty colleagues, they do their research, they do their teaching, and that's about all you ever see of them. Um, and that's fine. We need people like that. They're probably much more focused on their research than I am and probably do much better research than I do. Um, but I, I see an important extra part of the higher education experience is I'm in a place where there's a lot of really smart and really interesting people. Hmm. So when we have the afternoon happy hour, why not go to that? When we have the staff appreciation day that faculty are invited to, why not go build develop, and develop relationships with the staff as well as with other faculty? And, you know, and engage with the students as well. And 
you know, and I've begun to make no apologies for what my fellow faculty do. What Bowen students ask, why do you show up at these things? You are interesting. It is interesting to meet you. This is where I belong. And just yesterday, I went, um, we had both the uh, the happy hour in the afternoon. We had our student organization. I think we call it a showcase rather than a fair, but whatever you want to call it, different <laughs> student organizations that carry were represented at lunchtime yesterday in our lobby. Mm. And I had primarily gone down to see how the gentleman running the Pride Business Association was doing because uh, he has a lot of part-time students interested, but hadn't found many full-time students to engage in leadership roles this year. So he was getting a few bites. But while I was down there, you know, I engaged with students enough that, oh, a couple other students started talking to them. Let me introduce you to this other student from this other organization. And sooner than I know it, I'm talking to, you know, this year's two new leaders of our women in business group. And I've always been a big supporter of that group and asking them, oh, are you having our your Stoop storytelling event again? Oh, you want, you're in the healthcare space? We could talk about that. And you know, we have lunch next week. And that just sort of, you know, that sort of thing, that ability to do the active listening, create that feeling of, I'm giving you a piece of my time and I want to learn something about you, even in just a five minute conversation. Um, you know, I, we occasionally have things at home, even where I, my wife said this to me last night, she's like, why is everybody like such a, and again, most of the students I happen to invite, invite over because of my network usually are women, but it's events where we'll have some friends, some family and some students who we invite over. And my wife is like, why are they all like such fangirls for you? <laughs> You're just Kevin. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. But I think, again, compared to other faculty, mm -hmm. my desire to connect, my desire to create that sense of I belong here, you belong here too. And one way to demonstrate that belonging is to actually give them the time of day other than just lecturing to them in class. Yes. And again, hopefully when we have three hours classes, it's not literally just lecturing to right, them, right. but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, outside of class, engaging, yeah. having the conversation, interacting, it makes such a difference. And so, you know, that ability to connect just reminds me, every person I've ever met is someone who is now part of my network that I can help connect to somebody else and create something that didn't exist before. And that is what I belong doing. Ugh. I can just see it in your body language yeah. that this is so life-giving and that oh, these yeah. conversations, <laughs> and I don't know how you feel, you know, sometimes when I have similar interactions with students, I'm like a thousand percent on in the moment. And later on, I am so tired. Like, it's like this exhaustion <laughs> from, from the best kind of work, you know? Um, it is. And mine is rooted because the last time I took the Myers-Briggs, I was so far on the I side that, um, you know, it was way, way off on the I side of the EI. And I always have to remind myself that doesn't say how you interact with people in the moment, mm -hmm. but it says when you're done that interaction, much like you said, <sighs> I just want to go off, curl up. Take a nap, read a nice, you know, trashy novel or something, you know, <laughs> and not have to exercise my brain or go to a party afterwards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But what a gift to be able to identify those strengths and talents of your own, to be able to leverage them in such a way that, I mean, wouldn't it be neat to draw, to have that paper towel commercial of your networks, you know, to just sort of <laughs> visualize it and say, you connected to you, to you, to you. Yeah. The other thing that I'm hearing in your story, which is so neat, is the explicit nature of the belonging. So you're literally, it sounds like saying to people, oh, I hear that you're interested in this. I know someone who does that. I would love to connect you, right? You're so clear about this, not just in your head, but like you're using the words to model the belonging, which... I just have to believe that's going to perpetuate in these people who you're connecting. 
Uh, I hope so. I mean, I, I certainly, uh, one person who I mentored at my undergraduate institution, so we do like alumni undergraduate mentoring, and um, she was a biomedical engineering major of all things, <laughs> who uh, who I met because the dean of the honors college posted about her. And I just, you know, some I can't obviously, you know, respond to every one of these things that I ever see, but she had a particularly interesting story. I said, I sent her a little email. Oh, that was a great story, you know, and and yeah, you know, we engaged, and she now says that I taught her everything she knows about mentoring. I won't take that much credit, but that's what <laughs> she will say. But she has gone on as a PhD student at Brown and their biomedical engineering person. So she called herself a STEMinist uh, <laughs> because she is a Bangladeshi female in wow. biomedical engineering. And I can wow. assure you, there are not too many of those. No. Uh, and so she takes quite a bit of pride in that and takes quite a bit of pride in her ability now to mentor more junior graduate students and undergraduate students and bring them. And anytime she can introduce me to one of her mentees, it, she lights up about it. I light mm -hmm. up about it. Well, I think we have yet to actually have a meeting where there are like three generations in this mentoring <laughs> relationship together, but sooner or later we'll manage that. Um, but, I, but I know that it wears off because my youngest son just started a college. Mm -hmm. He's the first of our three boys to actually leave Baltimore. And so we took him up to Providence, Rhode Island and yeah, as he was choosing a roommate, um, you know, a lot of kids, because they have orientation and ways to meet each other beforehand, oh, I want a room with this person. My son's like, no, I just want a room in this building. So I'll take whoever I get. With. And at the time when he when he signed up, he's like, oh, my roommate's a whatever major. And my wife and I are like, oh, interesting. You chose a you chose room with a different major. He's like, yeah, because they can introduce me to a network of people I wouldn't have otherwise. I'm like, yes. Uh, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. Message sent. That is impressive at 18. <laughs> That's very cool. He's he's paying attention yes. to, to dad for sure. Yeah. So. So I have to ask, because I also, Brianne, sensed just there's something, and we've seen it in our data from our research, this like somatic response, this lighting up, this resonance, right, that happens when you do all these wonderful things that you're doing. And we too have colleagues that that play different roles in a university, right? I mean, we need all different kinds of faculty, just as we need all different kinds of people. So what I have to ask, Kevin, and what I sense is... There's a grounded, I'm going to use the word grounded sense of belonging to self in here somewhere. That's what I'm sensing. And I'm just wondering, when you think of the idea of belonging to self, what does that conjure up for you? Like, how would you describe that? So I've got something written on my whiteboard, which I now take as my personal mission statement, which says, empower authentic pursuit of purposefully defined success. Um, and that is belonging to self. You know, I want to be. Can you be... say that again for the sure. listeners? Yeah. <laughs> Empower mm -hmm. authentic pursuit of purposefully defined success. Mm. So I want to do that for people I mentor. I want to do that for people I teach, and I have to do it for myself. Um, you know, I worked with uh, a couple of different. So there's three different coaches who have influenced me all of whom are women, by the way, uh, <laughs> since I took the since I took the job as, as vice dean when I switched between the School of Public Health and the business school. And the first one, it was just a transition into a, a formal leadership role. She was very helpful in that initial transition. The second one, again, local in Baltimore, and her mantra is align your values and your actions. And I went through a workshop she runs, half-day workshop she runs twice, where you sort of identify what your core values are, recognizing those can change a little bit over time, but are probably going to be fairly constant. But look back and ask, have you been consistent with your core values in the past? 
the uh, six weeks workshop that she developed, 10 women and me, uh, in her first session, uh, <laughs> not surprising to me that it was imbalanced. I was surprised how imbalanced it was. Uh, but it was about looking forward and really trying harder to align values and actions. And, and I have gotten to that space where I feel like I am, you know, maybe not 100% aligned every day, but I am much more closely aligned than I used to be and recognizing that and making it an explicit thing rather than just sort of, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. The other coach, I mean, she said to me over and over again, you know, why do you get up so early? Why do you work to the point of exhaustion? And um, it was one morning in 2015, she was, uh, she visited me in my office and she asked this question three times. And each time she stopped me when I was answering and it was appropriate that she stopped me. She wasn't being rude yep. because she would say, you know, Kevin, you're using your job description. You're using your job title. Give me an intrinsic answer. And the fact of the matter is two years into my vice dean position, I couldn't. Now, not that it kept me up nights every day for the next five years, but that statement that I now have on my whiteboard, that was a five-year later statement when finally I said, no, this is what I was put here on this earth to do. This is what I am supposed to be doing with my life. And yes, sometimes I feel more of it and sometimes I feel less of it. And it's not going to be 100% of everything that I do every day. But if I can find ways to structure the, what I do for the remainder of my career to do this as much of the time as possible, then I belong to myself. Mm. Love that. Mm. One thing that Brianne and I really try to do with our podcast is not just sort of talk about, share the stories and the research, but also try to provide sort of tactical, practical sort of strategies, right? So just to sort of really break it down for folks who are listening. And so one thing you said, Kevin, is, you know, you, you went through the core values work and you started looking forward that you were in balance. And now most days you're mostly aligned. Right. And so can you go going back to sort of that practicality of things, can you give us some insight in like, when you say structure the rest of your career to be doing that work that aligns what does that look like? Like what, what kind of systems, strategies do you have in place to honor those core values? Two things. One, I have journaled, uh, not literally journaled every day, but I have journaled about each day. So that is an important distinction there. Sometimes uh -huh. I'll go back and write about the past two or three days at once. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, I have journaled about each day since January 1st, 2017. Mm. That is a wow. long time to keep this habit up. It is. Yeah. Um, it has made an enormous difference though, mm -hmm. because as the Dean who brought me between the two schools used to say, look for patterns in your life, however you choose mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. And journaling helps me to do that. Mm -hmm. And whether it's just a slight recounting of the day, uh, what brought me joy, that's a, a prompt I often use, mm -hmm. uh, what I learned, that's a prompt I often use, mm -hmm. uh, what was the core value that I was exhibiting today most, that's a prompt I often use, But you, and then go back. Don't just write it and like say, oh, that was nice, but go back every once in a while and, and look and analyze and think about what you wrote. You know, you can really begin to formulate if, if to get to that first step of what am I really trying to form? Mm -hmm. And then um, I was recently talking to a PhD student who is in this stage of pre-writing the dissertation proposal, has a lot of things they're interested in, being invited to get on more projects. I said, no, no. At my stage in my career, if I get on more products, that's fine. At your stage in your career, you have one goal. The best dissertation is a done one. Mm -hmm. So let's get you there. And so, you know, while each individual product may be helpful on its own, you have to ask whether they fit into the big set. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So I've never actually done this exercise and I probably should for myself, <laughs> but as a practical, I do it mentally, but I should probably do it physically as a practical exercise on the part of my whiteboard that doesn't have that personal mission statement. Mm-hmm. I should probably have, what are all the main products that I'm working on? And then if somebody offers me a new project, ask myself, okay, if I do a little Venn diagram, you know, here's the main products in the diversity space. Here's the main products in the cost effectiveness space. Here's some new teaching initiatives. Um, but if somebody gives me a new product, does it fit in one of those circles I already have? Does it fit in the main circle that I already have? If I've got to have a new circle on my diagram, is it a circle that I want to develop or just, um, yeah, that sounds interesting in the moment, but maybe I shouldn't do that. And so from a practical point of view, whatever system you have for keeping track of, here's what I'm working on, here's a new idea, and asking, does that new idea fit into the puzzle you're trying to put together in this process we call life? Um, if it fits, great. If you can sort of force it in there, maybe. But if you can't even force it in there, then unless you absolutely need it because it's the only thing that's going to pay the bills, think twice about whether you're going to do that or not. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. such great. I love that. That's such great advice because we we often, because we have these saboteurs and inner critics that think we have to please people and say yes, that we often say yes before we've even given it any thought, right? So learning to set boundaries for yourself, really important. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, oh, go ahead, Carrie. I was just gonna. I just had one quick follow up to the the two tips, um, Kevin, and that was, how did you get journaling to to stick as a habit? Um, it's almost like any other habit. You know, set a goal of doing it for a week. Okay. Uh, you know, set a goal. Not initially. I mean, at one point, I had ten prompts. Particularly when I was typing. It's much harder to handwrite 10 prompts today, but typing can go very quickly. Mm-hmm. Although I actually am back to handwriting at this point because it's a different mental yes. process yeah. of doing the handwriting. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, set a little goal. I want to do one week. And yep. now that I've gotten to, I've done four weeks in a row, so I'm done a month now. Let me make sure I go through the next month. You know, don't say I'm going to journal every day for the next five years. <laughs> or, or my one friend who got a book from her, from her best friend, it was a thought a day. Mm. I had five years worth of days. So the goal was, in that, in fact, to fill it for five years. But it wasn't, I'm going to write a paragraph a day. I'm going to write a page a day. It was one thought a day. Mm. And really enjoy it after you've done that for a week or a month or you know a quarter. You yeah. might start writing more than one thought about it you know, each day. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think the key is, you know, just just like if you were starting a new exercise regimen, yeah. training for your first race, you're not going to train for a marathon for your first race in all likelihood. Yeah. You're going to train for a 5K. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say spoken like a true ma- uh, runner with the, yeah. the exactly. incremental training for one week. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> my daughter is 14. My younger daughter is 14 and she got a book that was a thought a day or something to that effect um, for Christmas last year. And she's been doing it and she's like, this is so cool. I thought I just started it. And then because it's only one sentence, I can do it. And I guess she would say the same thing that she journals about each day because she does say sometimes I'm just so tired and I miss a night, but then I go back. So you know, everybody can do this sort of practice and yeah, it's kind of inspirational. One other thing that I just, I'm taking from you before I ask you to wrap us up is what I've heard from the very start of this conversation. And I want to circle it back to the end is that you place so much value on the conversations you had in the lobby. Like you went down and connected these people and chatted with the folks at the pride table and then walked over to the women in business. Cause you know, you like them too. I feel like that's a circle on your board. Like <laughs> where, you know, how much time am I spending doing something that's, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, but those relationships I think are so important. 
And those interactions, like you, you want to put money, those are like money in the bank, I think in for, for all those students and for you probably as well. But I don't know how that fits in your, in your diagram, but <laughs> it's but that yeah, piece. I think it fits in my diagram because it comes back to what do I see as part of my job? Mm-hmm. You know, if I were in a school of public health where this percent of time is on this grant and this percent of time is on this grant, there's no way to say that goes with a grant. Right. But when I'm in a business school where we don't have to do that, it's like, and especially, and especially in a business school where networking and connections are fundamental to what we are trying to teach these students how to do. I mean, I came home yesterday, I said to my wife, yesterday I saw one kid, he was over at the side, brand new. He's one of our, he's in one of our four plus one programs, the local undergraduate institution. And he was just standing off to the side. I'm like, why is he standing off to the side of the student organization showcase? So I said, come over here. I want to introduce you. And I'm like, what am I doing? When I was the undergrad, I was the one like him standing <laughs> off to the side. And I'm like, this has really come full circle. But it's because when I was the undergrad, I thought I could do it all myself. I thought I knew what I was doing. I was this headstrong. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody else. The Simon and Garfunkel song, I am a rock. I am an island. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was my theme song as a teenager. I can do this. I don't need anybody's help. Mm, wow. What what was I thinking? Yeah. You know, whereas these days I say to people, well, how did I succeed as a faculty? We get by with little help from our friends every single day as a faculty member. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it is part of what I do. Would some of my colleagues and maybe even the dean say maybe I do a little too much of that? They might. <laughs> um, but um, I, I've been pretty successful doing yeah. it. So I, I'm not going to, you know, less than until somebody says you have to produce more papers per year, which I'm probably not going to hear at this stage in my career. Yeah. Um, I, I think it is a fundamental way that I do create value for other stakeholders in the school. Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds like it. Sounds like a secret sauce. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, Kevin, we always like to just ask if there's anything else that you would like to add or share before we wrap up. Um, I mean, I think this has been a wonderful opportunity. It was a wonderful opportunity for me to reflect, you know, in terms of, you know, what are the things that I'm doing? When I say, you know, that belonging is my choice for a fourth word with diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, I know people in the person, in the individual with handicap space who like to add accessibility. I know some people like to throw in um, justice. Uh, you know, and then spelled Jedi. And there's this whole debate in the community that focuses on these things, whether Jedi is even a good term because the Jedi weren't diverse and they weren't very inclusive. And so there's <laughs> interesting discussions and tinges you could take in this. But for me, it really is about belonging, you know, and whether it's the example I gave earlier, uh, a Robert Frost poem that is one that, you know, I have a whole book of his poems and this one poem about people, you know, building a wall each spring between two farms where there was no livestock on either side. And why do we build this wall that we don't need to, to build? Or this morning, I was thinking back to what else really got me into this. And the Sting song, Do the Russians Love Their Children Too, from the 1980s. Again, this feeling of there is more that connects us than doesn't connect us. So why can't we find the connections that we share? And I don't know. The fundamental thing that I can't answer is how did this become my main motivation? (laughs) Where did this grow from? I can't answer that. But wherever it came from, finding that it is what I want to live out. And I want to live it out in the most creative way that I can. Mm-hmm. Creative in terms of how I express myself, creative in terms of meeting different artists and you know people I can go back to multiple times saying, what can you do to help me create this feeling with you know things I would wear in the future? Because most of the art that I buy is jewelry. Um, 
to have the luxury of the resources to do that and realize that's a privilege to have that luxury, but then to use that as part of the way that I invite other people, whether it's you know being able to afford you know the fancier stuff that you can buy for people who handmade it, or just anything that speaks to you, and then be able to take that with you where you go. That's the goal. And again, how I got there, I'm still working on that one. Maybe I need to see a therapist to figure out how I got there. <laughs> uh, but it's not a bad place to be. Yeah, it's a great place to be, and we're all fortunate that you're you're in that place. And um, as we wrap up, I just want to say, sort of publicly, Kevin, I'm so appreciative of your time and your thoughts and your stories, and I feel so lucky um, to have gotten to know you over the years. And now I feel even luckier that I know a little bit more of your story. Um, and I would, I would, um, say, while I don't know your, all of your story, I would say as an outsider looking, looking at you and, and being a part of some of your, your work that I think this has always been in you. Um, I think part of maybe life's journey is learning more language and meeting more people and, part of the work is you've been amplifying the talents of others while also amplifying something that's always been in you. Cause as I said to you, I feel like you were always interested in the belonging of others. Um, even when you were the quiet, really smart, nerdy faculty member sitting at the other end of the table, I always got a sense that you cared deeply about the human beings at the table, not just the work. So, so I think it's always been there and maybe it's just, grown and gotten brighter as you've <laughs> explored your your journey. So so Brianne and I are so grateful um, that you joined us today and um, are kicking us off. So this is our first guest for our season five. And um, thanks. Thanks, Brianne, for all your great questions. And Kevin, thank you so much for your vulnerability and your stories. It's been it's been our pleasure. So thank you for inviting me. Certainly. Absolutely. All right, everybody. This is another episode of Tell Me This. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, take care and be well. So sincere under the glaciers of your last year.